0: So this week, we'll be looking at the gift of marriage. So we'll be considering Matthew 19, verses 1 through 10. So follow along with me as I read this passage from God's Word. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking... Is it lawful to divorce one's spouse, one's wife, for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man it is better not to marry god's word and from there the passage is going to go into singleness all right so that's why we stopped right there finishing up the talk on marriage so i want to i want to just draw out several different points that jesus is making about marriage kind of explain as we go the the background a little bit of the background of what the pharisees are really asking but but i want to focus on what Jesus is teaching about marriage. And the first thing, marriage is grounded in creation. Marriage is grounded in creation. So the Pharisees, they're trying to test Jesus, right? So they're asking a question about marriage. They're asking a question about divorce. And they're basing their questions on the Bible. So they're basing their questions out of a passage in Deuteronomy where God had given uh, some, some uh, guidelines regarding divorce. And so in verse uh, 7, they actually bring that up. They say they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So they're, they're looking at this Mosaic law, this teaching of God, and the, the boundaries of divorce, and they're saying, Okay, so based on this, we want to understand what marriage is all about but Jesus is not satisfied with their starting point. Here's what they're doing. They're coming to laws which are designed to restrain sin, sin which is affecting marriage, and from those laws deduce what marriage is supposed to really look like. And Jesus is saying, you can't work this way. You can't start with it, let's look at the most broken cases, and build a vision for what marriage is, we need to start somewhere else. And so he says in verse 8, he answers their question, why did Moses give us these rules? He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. He wants to get back to the beginning, the beginning, back to creation, back to God's intent for marriage before our sin messed it up, before human depravity got its hooks into marriage. So yes, the law makes some accommodation for the reality of divorce, but that doesn't speak to God's intention for marriage. And so he actually quotes two verses from Genesis 1 and 2 about marriage. Now just real quick, we're going to, Jesus is going back to Genesis 1 and 2, right? Genesis 1 and 2 are creation, right? These are the creation narratives, all right. Genesis 3 is the fall, is when sin enters the world. So Jesus is taking us back pre-sin, pre-fall, pre-messed up, when everything God did was either good or very good, depending on what he said about it, right? So this is, this is back to God's design, and so he quotes in verse 4 from Genesis 1, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? This is, this is Jesus summarizing Genesis 1, verse 26, when God created mankind. God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Right? So he quotes this one verse from chapter 1, and now he's going to quote a verse from chapter 2, and he's going to put them next to each other in his argument. So quoting from Genesis 2, he says, in verse 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So this is quoting what had just happened where God had made Eve from Adam, and then had given Eve to Adam, and, and he had he had created the first marriage by giving them to each other right then and then uh, calling the man to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So marriage is grounded in creation. That's how the scriptures teach of it, speak of it. From the first page to the last is grounded in creation. Pre-sin, pre-pollution, pre-legal accommodations for restraining sin. But so what? So what that it's grounded in creation? Well, it leads us to number two. So number one, marriage is grounded in creation. Number two, marriage is governed by God. Is governed by God. God, you will note, does a lot of talking in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. And as he speaks, stuff happens. God doesn't just, you know, bloviate, just kind of talk, right? When God talks, this is how God governs. That's how God accomplishes things. He need not stand up to get things done. He speaks, and the universe is made. He speaks, and the sun begins to shine. He speaks, and the plants begin to grow, and He speaks, and marriage is given to men. It is in the speech of God, and Jesus attributes it to the speech of God, when he uses the first two words of verse 5, and said, he's, he's quoting God right here. God is speaking that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So marriage was God's idea. Marriage was God's gift. And so as the one who created it, he's the one who governs it. Now Jesus applies this principle finally to their question. Right, They asked a question about divorce. So he's going to answer that question in verse 6. Having just quoted from Genesis, he says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, I know we're used to, some some of us are used to these words, but what Jesus is doing here is marvelous. In an economy of words, he is saying so very much. Because who were we just talking? We were just talking about Adam and Eve, right? Right? God had put Adam and Eve together and he had declared, therefore, let man, you know, leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. So, on the first level, it's like, don't you dare try to get Adam and Eve to break up because God put them together, right? But that's not what he's saying, is it? He goes from Adam and Eve to you, to me, to us. marriage in the everyday in the real world and he declares on the basis of creation he says what God has joined together let no man seek to separate marriage was created by God at creation and it's created by God every time someone gets married God joins people together that's what Jesus is teaching So let no man try to separate what God does in the act of marriage. It is a profound and stunning reality. Marriage may be grounded in creation in the past, but it is governed by God in the present. It's His right now. He's ruling over it right now. God is the creator of marriage. He's the active agent that joins people together. It's his. And that's a political statement. It was a political statement for Jesus at the time. Because when he says that God governs marriage, what does that imply? It implies not Herod. Herod may govern Judea, but he does not govern marriage. Herod may pollute marriage, he may twist marriage. He may attempt to define marriage however he wants, but marriage is not his. Marriage belongs to God. Perhaps you see the modern relevance of this as well. Marriage is governed by God and defined by God. It is not defined by the desires of a husband who's looking for a way out. It is not defined by the thoughts of a wife who is unhappy in her current situation and looking for something new. It is not defined by the whims of a secular culture that is seeking as hard as it can to redefine it. And no matter how many TV shows, no matter how many movies, no matter how many political speeches or college lectures, to the contrary, God still defines marriage. It is not defined by the executive order of a governor, by the legislative action of a legislature, nor was it redefined by the Obergefell case at the Supreme Court in 2015. What they succeeded to do was to put our sin into law. They did not touch the definition of marriage. Marriage is before this country. Marriage is before this culture. Marriage is before the court. Marriage is before all the pollution came into the world. Marriage is grounded in creation and governed by God. All right. Grounded in creation, governed by God. Number three, marriage is gendered. Marriage is gendered. I... I don't walk around looking for opportunities to be political from the pulpit. But when Jesus answered the question on marriage, he took two verses from all the Bible and put them together. Here's the first verse that he took. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He started there. He started there. And then, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's two things that we need to see from this. The first, that humanity is made gendered. God made us male and female. And in fact, do you know why the enemy hates this so much? It is because when God made man in his own image, the image of God would only be reflected in man if there was male and female. This is the full the fullness of God's intention to show His image. He made men and women to do that together. Distinctly, but together in a beautiful way. This is the image of God that we're talking about and the enemy hates it and our culture has forgotten it. God made us to use some of the wording of our culture, binary. Gender binary. That means there are two options for gender. You may be one or you may be the other. Gender was not created by God on a fluid spectrum from one side to another, a kind of continuum of expression, but as two distinct options, gender binaries, male and female. Now, this is just truth from God's word. And like me, you're watching our culture lose the truth. And like me, you're probably mourning that human impact that this is going to have. So when people refuse to align their lives with the uh, creation itself, with the creator and the way that he made the world, it does not go well for humans or for human flourishing. And it is a Sad thing to watch. This affects, of course, this affects the, This is the transgender movement, right? Where there's now a sense of being able to change from one gender to another or have a spectrum of genders. Now, at this point, I have to think about what I'm going to talk about up here. Because, you know, there's a lot that could be said on these issues. And I've given a little bit of biblical truth, but we haven't even looked yet at what you might call biblical tone is the way that we want to think about this and the way we want to care for others in this because the tone of Scripture is, the, is in pursuit of the sinner, is in, is in pursuit of the one who's confused and hurting and broken by this world and lost. The, the tone of Scripture is calling sinners to repentance, I think we've got a lot that we could talk about in this. So I'm actually going to give a, a plug right now for my Every Square Inch class. All right, I don't like to do this very much, but I need to right here. It's just perfect. Next week, we're starting a class on gender and sexuality. And basically, I'm going to take the stuff that I don't have time for now, and we're going to talk about that together then. All right, That class is right before church or right after church, same class. Come to either one but I want to get to the truth of Scripture and the tone of Scripture when it comes to gender and when it comes to sexuality. Uh, We're going to talk about the transgender issue, but I also want to talk about how will you talk to a transgender person and what will that look like? So I want you to imagine that you've got a quiz coming. You know, like in school, you've got a quiz coming, and I want you... I want. I want you to think, are you ready for your A plus or your 100% on the quiz coming? How many of you are ready to walk with one of your kids who's tempted in the LGBTQ direction? How many of you are ready to talk to a family member who's coming out to you? How many of you are ready to think about if you're going to attend the gay wedding you were just invited to? Or not? How does God even, how does he want us to think about these things? Everybody ready for your 100% on that quiz? That quiz is coming. It is absolutely coming. And if I could just appeal to the older folks in this church, that is, I will put myself in that group. My age and up. If you are my age and up, chances are you have not had to deal with this directly in your life which is amazing because if you are about 20 years younger than me, you have no fewer than five gay friends and probably two transgender friends right now. It is changing so fast that you can see it changing the younger culture and the, the older culture, it's not, it's not affecting as quickly. And I want to invite the older folks to come and think about this. Why? Why? Because we want to be the ones leading and caring for the next generation. Helping them think it through. Supporting them as they have to do stuff. We didn't have to think about this in high school. They have to think about this by high school. They've got to have answers. It's, it's, not, it's not theory. It's now. It's right now. Um, and I know that for the older generation, this stuff is distasteful. You, you, you hate to see the changes happening to our culture. I get that. But we need to learn about this stuff so that we can care for the other folks in this church and by the grace of God so that we can be a place where the broken from the world come in and have a, a safe place to encounter the Lord, where we can point them to the Lord. All right, so come to class, okay? All right. Back to the topic. God created us, male and female, and so we are a gendered species And then he gave us to each other. And so marriage is gendered. Okay, marriage, grounded in creation, governed by God, gendered, and number four, gripped by sin. Marriage is gripped by sin. The entire passage presumes divorce. The whole thing, that's where it started. They're asking, when is it okay? Why is it okay? Why do the Pharisees start here? Why do they start with these questions on Divorce, why are there centuries of debate about marriage? Because human beings are sinful. Human beings are gripped by sin. Ever since Genesis 3, when sin got into our bloodstream, it has infected everything we've touched, including marriage. The gift from God was good. He just gave it to people who aren't and we mess it up. And now we've been talking culture issues. Now I want to talk church issues because sin grips the marriages of this church. Each one in different ways. But this is our reality. It just didn't like end when you got saved, right? Sin grips the marriages of this church. It leads to illicit desires and sexual temptation. Often heterosexual lust, sometimes homosexual lust. Yes, absolutely, in the church, a battle. It leads to, within a marriage, anger and indifference and coldness and selfishness and bitterness, and it can do all that in the first year. And uh, by a couple decades of that, some things kind of built up, can lead us to drifting after some, some hobby rather than pursuing the one God gave us, prioritizing too much of work and too little of the person God called you to love. Focusing so much on the kids and so little on each other. That's why the question of divorce comes up. You know, nobody gets married hoping to get divorced, right? It's one little thing at a time. It's one little sin pattern ignored over and over, time after time. The problem, of course, is you got married to a sinner and so did your spouse. (laughs) That's the problem, right? And so when imperfect people marry imperfect people, they develop imperfect situations and our sinful heart looks for a way out. And the enemy will tempt the hurting heart and the sinful heart and the wounded heart, the angry heart. And divorce becomes attractive. And let me just say, if you're at all near that, come talk to someone. All right? If you're at all near that, come talk to one of the pastors, please. Don't let it continue to grow. Don't let it continue to grow. That's how everyone gets there. But also, don't just put the blinders on and say, oh, I'll never get there, so this is fine. No. Like sin is sin, right? Sin is sin, whether it gets to divorce or not. Sin is sin. Be about confessing it and turning to Him. So let me ask where is God calling you, husband, to repent? Where is God putting His finger, wife? For you to repent. The first call is to. Is to get your eyes on your own sin. Rather than primarily your spouses. Because you can do business with God about your own. And he would call you to do that. So where is he calling you to get a trusted friend. Or a deacon or a pastor involved. To help you walk through this some of these i mean unraveling years of hurt and misunderstanding is not for the faint of heart and is impossible to do alone difficult to do alone so where's god calling you to to repent i've called this section marriage is gripped by sin i might have just called it marriage is hard <laughs> marriage is hard Your spouse's sin makes it hard. Your sin makes it hard. Jesus calls us to purity in marriage, to a lifelong marriage. And in fact, his calling is so clear to the disciples that they kind of freak out. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus is going to surprise you in verse 11 next week when he says, Yeah, that could be true. That'll be the gift of singleness, and we'll talk about that. But for now, talking to those who are married, that's not an option. You are married. So what do you do now? Right? So this leads to our final point. Marriage grounded in creation, governed by God, gendered, gripped by sin. Number five, guiding us to Christ. Guiding us to Christ. Friends, marriage will reveal more sin in you than any other relationship you have. That's because it's closer than any other relationship you have. So you're going to get closer to another sinner than you do with anyone else. You're going to be impacted by their sin more than anybody else's impacts you. And that's going to draw stuff out of you. And you will find that you are not who you thought you were when you got married. You know? How did I get so impatient as soon as I got married, you know? Here's the sad secret to that question, okay? You didn't get impatient when you got married. Your impatience was revealed. You were already there, (laughs) okay? I'm sorry. That's what this does. It doesn't create new sin. It reveals the sin of our hearts. It's there. You're not as sacrificial, servant-hearted, thick-skinned, not quite as humble, not quite as willing to love as perhaps you thought you were when you got married. Do you know what marriage does? Do you know why marriage is so hard? Because it reveals every day your need for the gospel, your need for Jesus over and over. And friends, this is part of God's good plan for Christians who are married. This is part of the gift. It's a hard gift. This is part of the good gift that God has given to Christians who are married. It's not to show you how much you have it together. All right? Like, my marriage shows what a good person I am, said no one ever. Right? (laughs) My marriage shows me how much I need a Savior. shows how big our sin problem is, how persistent it is, how daily it is, how stubborn is our selfishness, and how deceptive is our pride. Marriage will reveal your need for the gospel daily. And so, friend, I want to encourage you to allow it to do what God intended, which is not to force you down into the mud and wallow in your sin, but rather in revealing your need for the gospel to drive you to Jesus day after day after day as the only Savior that's big enough for me, as the only Savior whose mercy is great enough for my sin, whose, whose, whose mercy is great enough to give me hope after years and years of patterns that have developed or whatever it is that you're dealing with. We come face to face with real sin. But I've got good news for you because we don't serve a kind of Sunday school savior, kind of fictitious God, a, a good but relatively impotent idea. We serve the living God. We serve the living God who actually acts in the lives of his people, who actually forgives his servants when they call upon his name, whose spirit is given to us that we can do battle against sin and have hope in the midst of this life. So church, look to the living God this morning. Married folks and single folks alike, let us look to the living God this morning. Listen, he, he, he listens to you as you confess your sin. And as you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So married friends, Allow your marriage to guide you to Christ over and over and over again.